Hello, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, and welcome to Happiness, a Skeptic's Guide with myself, Paul Flower, and Dr. Gary Wood, Hello. in which we explore the themes of happiness and how to acquire it, how to keep Ooh. it. And I like what you did there with the appealing to all time zones. Yes, I thought, well, you know, these podcasts, you can listen to them whenever you like, and as many times as you like, and we do encourage <laughs> multiples. We do indeed. In this episode, we're looking at uh, the very definition of happiness. So what is happiness itself and can it actually be measured? Uh, because if we're intending to perhaps try and increase everyone's happiness, how, we need a baseline, we need a starting point. So uh, can I ask you, Gary, what is happiness? Well, that's a difficult question. I wish I'd have prepared for it. Now, happiness, <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's been a lot of research into happiness and there has been for decades. It's probably over the past, what, 20 30 years that it's really become a, a field of psychology in its own in what we call positive psychology whereas rather than looking at all the negative emotions like the Freudian thing and blaming everything on your parents what we're looking is how can we explore positive emotions how can we uh, recreate positive mental states two basic definitions come out of happiness there's one it's just the good life the pleasurable life and then there's the other aspect, which is the meaningful life. And they've got a couple of, oh, God, it sounds like I'm giving a lecture. They've got a couple of uh, Greek sounding names. And the one is hedonia or hedonia from where we get hedonism. So if I say to you, we'll have a good hedonic life, what would you think it means? Well, I'd always want more head. Hedonism, obviously, in my life. So um, that's a good starting point for me. Um, but yeah, okay, hedonic life, that, that kind of means joy and kind of going out and sort of enjoying yourself regardless of everybody else. That's what I always think of hedonism as being, whether that's true or not. So, uh, so we, you go out, if you happen to partake of the odd libation or two and you wake up with a hangover, is that feeling of a hangover part of the happiness? I think so, because it evokes a memory of, of what you did last night, what you did and how much fun you had, because now you're suffering as a result of it. Now, you might not want to suffer, but, you know, that's a, a byproduct. But is suffering happiness? Uh, I got to 30 and I recognised that I I used to be able to go out, have a real good night on the tiles. And someone sometimes I'd turn up for work on a Saturday morning in the same clothes I was wearing. And I, I was fine. I got to 30 and then I'd lose a day. And I started to resent that. So where, where am I going with this? The idea that hedonism is often thought to be living, you know, burning the candle at both ends. But it's really originally about uh, moderation. So everything in moderation, a little bit of what you fancy does you good. And that would have been that would have been hedonism. So a hangover would not be happiness under that definition. Okay. So that's the literal initial definition of hedonism or the hedonic life. Yeah. Hedonism would have been everything in moderation. So you, you there wouldn't be anything banned, but you wouldn't go too crazy on one. So you just, anything, anything goes. And what we tend to think of anything goes is that any excess goes. So if I we see. think about the good life, then it would it would be being able to go out, if you drink, have some drinks, nice food, but you wouldn't want to have indigestion, you wouldn't want to have a hangover. So it's kind of a, like that balanced, pleasurable life. And when I put it like that, it sounds a bit dull. 
it sounds very dull. I think there's an essence, though, isn't there? So there is an aging process and a and a period of life that where you could go out and do whatever you want and and damn the consequences. But once you get to a certain age and have more responsibilities, be they work or family, then you do resent the fact that you're going to suffer. And that's why the the whole hangover cure business is so vast you know not quite as vast as the happiness and well-being business but you know it, it's a huge thing if somebody could invent a pill that cured your hangover you would buy them by the truckload for those of us who drink of course it's funny that when i i always used to think of myself the, the idea of the, the hangover and also when i was younger i used to like having a lie-in on a saturday morning or sunday morning and now i don't because i if i see a sunny day i want to be out in it I suppose as you get older, you realise I'm going to be lying down a lot, lot, a hell of a lot very soon. So I, don't, I want to make the most. As we go through our lives, the definition of happiness maybe changes. So you might, a lie-in for some people might be a definition of happiness. For others, they might see it as wasted time. So it's ultimately what gives you pleasure. To an extent then, um, how do we measure it in the, the respect that, you know, the measurement is going to be very personal? There are lots Sorry. of ways to measure it. The most common ways are asking people questionnaires to measure their what we'd call subjective well-being. So, you know, you, you get this phrase where people say to you, how are you? And you go, oh, I'm OK, I'm fine. And especially older people, and I really like the question, and they go, but how are you in yourself? And everybody thinks, what the hell does how are you in yourself means? But it, what it is asking about your subjective well-being is how well do you feel about yourself? And happiness is pretty much the same. It's that sense of subjective feeling and doing well. So, so we, can, the, we can ask questions. Yeah, and I think that's how it is measured at the moment in most places. So I've, I've been reading the... Uh, the World Happiness Report, the 2021 World Happiness Report. Which, and I say I've been reading it. I'm at page 31 of 212. So uh, I haven't read that much of it. But right. it's um, formulated by the Happiness Research Institute. And three of the questions, because as you say, it has to be based on a questionnaire to a certain degree. Three of the questions that they ask, sorry, four, are about life satisfaction, mm. levels of anxiety. What was your happiness level yesterday? and trying to measure the extent to which people believe the things that they do are worthwhile. So that is how the World Happiness Research Institute measures happiness across all the countries of the world. And from that, they, they produce a chart of actually the, the, the 55 happiest countries, um, at which uh, the UK has slipped from 13 to 18 uh, in the recent one, which takes me back to my radio days. And I said, falling a massive five places, the UK now <laughs> at number 18 in the world's happiest countries. Um, so those are the questions that, that they ask. Um, would you say they're a, a good basis for everybody? Would people understand generally what was meant by life satisfaction, for example? I, I think life satisfaction for most people is, you know, if you say to you, how satisfied are you with life? To most people, they would kind of be able to give you a number. The, the question I have problems with there is the anxiety one, is that were you anxious yesterday? Uh, and that's that's a real snapshot approach. I think if we think about in terms of, uh, cinematic terms you've got the old Pol polaroid camera snapshot approach which gives you a moment in time so today things might something might have been making you anxious 
Or there's the longitudinal approach, which is like the video approach. So for the anxiety question, you probably need to ask that over a period of, say, six months for it to be meaningful anyway. So that's sure. that, I really have issue with that question. You've mentioned the worthwhile question. So that is, a, a while ago, I mentioned the two Greek words. Now, there's a number of ways to say this second word, and it's another definition of happiness. And it's, I think in English, it's eudaimonia or eudaimonia. Which sounds like a very nasty disease. It it does. But the EU is actually, the, the, the preface EU in Greek, is a prefix, is, uh, is a positive thing, despite what many people might think. <laughs> uh, so eulogy, a nice word you say to someone yeah. At, yeah. at a funeral, hopefully. So Greeks would pronounce it evthemonia. Anyway, what it means is meaning. So when we're talking about what's worthwhile in life, a definition of happiness could be that we are that we're living a meaningful life and we're satisfied in that way. But that means we might be miserable. So it can run in tension with the the good life approach, the pleasurable life approach. And a lot of research is looking at the tension between those two and trying to balance or incorporate those two is do we want the pleasurable life or do we want the meaningful life? I think one of one of the reasons we first talked about this podcast and and whether it was viable or not was the fact that you know mental health is in in crisis. A lot of people's mental health is in crisis, and the number of mental health problems reported in the UK in 2020 was 47 percent higher than in previous years. Right. So obviously, there's an issue to be addressed here, and I think many countries are also interested in addressing it because GDP and balance of trade and other measurements that people would have applied to how well their country is doing, they're kind of redundant these days uh, in many respects. Mm -hmm. And most people's balance of trade, certainly in the UK, uh, it's going to be horrific in, in years to come. So you need another measurement. Now, in New Zealand, what they did was, was try to kind of measure people's well-being and use that as an indicator of what a great country New Zealand is or what they needed to do to improve um, perhaps health and social outcomes, for example. But in the first instances, I believe that they're not quite getting where they need to go with that. So, you know, there's a long road ahead in many respects. Well, we've also, the Office of National Statistics in, in the UK collects information on well-being using pretty much the, you know, the similar questions. And it came probably on the back of austerity. And some uh, people have c criticised maybe that, you know, it's if we can demonstrate with statistics that people are feeling well about having less. Uh, so there's almost a cynical, that we can have a cynical interpretation, is are all these statistics actually being used for good? Are we actually really measuring well-being and happiness or is it a propaganda exercise? Oh, and that's the skeptic. That's the skeptic in me coming out. Which is great. It's exactly what we want. And we, we do think that, you know, we're all going to be very suspicious of anything that the government tries to do unless they make it independent. And even then, the very word independent or the description of independent has, uh, can be questioned because it's being, if it's being subsidized by government, they generally want to find a particular result. They go into it with, uh, not to, they don't want to lead uh, policy with evidence. They want policy to lead what the evidence should be. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, there's, there's this whole thing about, at the moment, trust. Trust has become a big thing about MPs just blatantly lying now. And in the Office of uh, 
national statistics, one of the factors that's important for well-being is governments, governance, particularly trust in governments. And so we, we need to ask the question, is all this distrust out there and mistrust and you know, the fake news and you know, the spins put on things, is that really adding anything to our well-being or is it taking away? It's massive. The whole trust issue is absolutely huge. And I think during the pandemic that it's been proven, the Happiness Research Institute actually mentioned this in the, uh, the report this year, that death rates um, from COVID could be explained by differences in public trust. So the death rate in Brazil is a third higher than it is in Denmark, for example, because people in Brazil trust their governments less and therefore do not listen to the information that their governments are putting out. And so trust in public office and trust in government is important. It can kill you if you don't trust them. There's also a parallel between uh, the trust we have in governments and the trust we have in healthcare. And this has really come to the fore in COVID. So we've got when we've got politicians saying, don't trust uh, the experts, just do as we say and you'll be fine. Uh, we know we're on we're we're no, we know we're on a slippery slope to nothing, and that's not well-beingville. That is that's a worrying trend. So coming on to the final point of of uh, what we were aiming to achieve from this particular episode, happiness goals. Can you actually set them? What do they look like? In terms of happiness goals, there's a whole body of research that looks at goal setting as a definition of happiness. And it's, I've got to now get my right teeth in to say his name. His name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he's I'm a positive, he's a positive, I can, and I can almost spell it. He's a positive psychologist. And he is uh, a great book that's about the theory of flow. Now, flow is that state where we kind of lose all sense of ourselves and we lose all sense of time. And probably the closest thing, if you can imagine, you know, when you get, a, for those who play computer games, you know, you start start off playing the computer game and then you realize three hours have gone. Or you pick up a book and you just can't put the book down. Or you take up a hobby and, you you know, you could be whittling away in your shed, if people still do that, for hours on end and you lose sense of yourself and you lose sense of time. And the key thing in there is setting a goal that stretches your ability in some way. So if you're just whittling the same thing over and over, hopefully we've got to clarify what whittling means. <laughs> it, it means chipping away at a piece of wood to craft something more interesting. If you set yourself more technical goals, you don't do the same thing over and over again. You know, you put in some development, so you're stretching yourself a little bit. And it's still something that causes a state of flow. For Csikszentmihalyi, that is a definition of happiness, the more time spent in flow. But that appears to put a um, a productivity sort of um, slant on happiness, if you like. So to me, that feels like there has to be an objective to what you're doing in order to gain happiness from it. Whereas I might be happy... Yeah sitting on the sofa watching a football match. But when you're sitting on the sofa watching a football match, which is, I, I have to own up to say, football is a total mystery to me. Do you lose sense of yourself? No. Um, so, I, you know, I understand what you mean by flow. And I think, that, you know, it's very valuable. It's a, it's a very good thing if you can achieve that sense of flow. But, you know, most people are not going to achieve a sense of flow from things other than either work or a dedicated hobby. So it insinuates that you have to, 
be enjoying your work, which a lot of people do not, uh, or have a hobby yep. that kind of uh, motivates you, let's say. Or I mean, it could be that you enjoy uh, meditation. It could be that you enjoy walking. Uh, so that could be the goal that you do. So you take up rambling and walking and you set yourself some goals there. Uh, your goal could be to be out in nature for X number of hours per week or to cover so, so many miles. So although we've quantified it in some way, it's just the quantification is just a way so we can know whether or not we've done it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a productive thing. It can be something that we just enjoy doing. Because uh, it's interesting when I, I've done a lot of workshops in uh, confidence building. And one of the things I start off with is breathing exercises. And in one workshop, this businessman looked very annoyed with me. And he said, and he looked and he goes, I haven't got time to breathe. <laughs> and he, but he was serious. He didn't, you know, the idea he met, I haven't got time to do breathing exercises, but that's yeah. not what everybody heard. And so there is a value in setting goals for stuff that you would give up. So when we feel stressed, I know when I'm stressed, because the first thing I do is I stop reading so much. So if I set a goal to make myself read a little bit more, it's just 30 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, that could be a happiness goal. So it's actually setting goals to do things that you know do you good. That could be as simple as it is. Yeah, because I am painfully bad at setting goals. Um, And it was the reason I didn't finish your first book, uh, unfortunately, because uh, you would get to the end of certain chapters and say, no, you you have to set a series of goals to do this, that and the other. And I was like, nah, you know, I just can't do it. So sorry, that's a confession that I wasn't intending to make in this episode, but there you go. Goals are massively uh, overcomplicated in some minds. And it makes them feel clinical. A goal could be simply a list. You tick off a list and you say, I'm going to do. All you need to do is specify an amount of time doing something. So if you make a list and say, and one on your list is, I'm going to spend 15 minutes this week going for a walk. Or I'm going to spend 30 minutes listening to, oh no, 26 minutes listening to one side of a prog rock album. Prog rock, I think I meant prog rock. <laughs> then that could that that could be a goal. I was think I was thinking of Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans. I never think of Yes's Tales from Topographic which Oceans. Which is for people who it. have not been uh, initiated, is a double prog rock album uh, with one track per side, and you pretty much do lose all sense of time and in sometimes a will to live. <laughs> and when you're talking about sides, you are actually talking in the older language of uh, vinyl Album. albums. Yeah, vinyl yeah, albums. So now, so, that would just be four tracks that happen to be 20 minutes long on Spotify, perhaps. Yes. I, 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 yeah. Other streaming services are available. Yes, of course they are. So that's all we're talking about is making sometimes happiness is about making time to do stuff that everyday life can shunt out of the way. So it's making time to read, making time to cook, making time to spend with your, you know, if your family make you happy to spend time with them. If your family don't make you happy to spend time away from them. And would you, would you say these are daily goals or are these, you know, you would attempt to do these X number of times per week? For it to be a, a goal, it has to be, um, you wouldn't just do it once. As you know, I work with coaching clients and I, I work on something, I use something called personal experiments. So I'd get them to set a very small goal and to do that for, say, a month. And it could be just five minutes a day. 
So it could be, or it could be two minutes. So it could be a simple breathing exercise that you do two minutes a day for a month. And at the end of it, you, uh, you review. So if you, if you set it, say, I'm going to do a week, every week, I'm going to have 15 to 20 minutes, a couple of times a week doing something I really like. I'll review it at the end of the month. I'll collect the data and I'll see, has this made a difference? Now, I would say I'd previously been very bad at setting goals. And then I did a little bit of work with, this is a huge name drop, uh, the astronaut Chris Hadfield. Uh, and he talked about how his role, his, his road to becoming an astronaut was kind of paved with, this is the thing that I need to do next. So that became, you know, his ultimate goal was to become an astronaut, but to become an astronaut, he knew he had to be good at physics and had to be good at math and had to be good at mm. languages. So that's, those were the subjects that he took at school. You know, he had to be good at sciences, so he took science subjects. And then he knew that most astronauts had been um, pilots. So he found out what you needed to do to become a pilot, and he became a pilot. And he said that had he had he just become a pilot, you know, he was quite happy with that. Had he just flown fighter jets, he'd have been perfectly happy with that. But obviously, you know, he started this road by trying to become an astronaut, and those were the steps that he took. So finding the steps for me was quite interesting in terms of thinking about goals because that I'd never been able to break them down in that way before and it took a massive overachiever like Chris Hadfield to be able to kind of do that for me which is I thought was interesting it's one way to set a goal is to find out where you want to go get a rough idea of how long it's going to take you so if you if you something you want to achieve how long is that going to take in the real world and then work back and say, what steps? That's clearly what he did. What steps do I need it to do? So just before I become an astronaut, what's the step before that? What's the step before that? And he went right back to school. So it starts with, and that is another way to set goals. I think it's important to recognize there are different ways to set goals. Uh, some people start with a big picture. Some people just want to start with a step to improve things in a small way. And that's fine. Because what happens is once you take a step to improve something in a small way, the brain starts to help you out. So you've probably been in that situation where you're kind of in a, a really reflective state and thoughts start spinning you around in your head and all you're doing is reflecting and reflecting and almost you could become paralyzed with thoughts. Because the brain's thinking, oh, we're in reflective mode now. So it becomes like a tumble dryer. The minute you seize on a thought and set an action on it, it tells the brain, ah, now we're in action mode. And that's the basis I work in coaching. So it doesn't have to be a massive step to start off. The easiest way to change perception on anything is to take a small action. That would be the takeaway. If you want to be happier in some way, find a small thing that makes you happy, preferably something that's active you know, sort of doing something rather than, you know, ingesting substances and then do it and do it repeatedly for a period of time and then check out what the effects are. How has that changed your perceptions of yourself and the world? That's a good takeaway for me. And I think that's a good, very, very good way to end the episode. Set yourself a goal, find out what makes you happy, do that thing more often or take steps to make sure that you can do that thing more often yeah and happiness can be either feeling good pleasurable life or it can be what gives your life meaning or it can be a combination of both i hope that we've made you a little bit happier during this episode and that uh, you'll continue to join us for this exploration of happiness a journey that we're on it may take 10 or 20 episodes and we may well circle back to where we started who knows but if you can subscribe to us and tell all your friends then uh, that will make us very happy Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot.